0: So, if you have a Bible, turn it to James chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 14 through 26. James says this What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead.
1: Yeah, so as Ed was saying, our passage this week is uh, dense is probably the best word to describe it. Uh, It's probably the most dense passage in all of James, but uh, it's also the passage that tends to get James in uh, the most trouble. And so let's just deal with the elephant in the room. The reason why what Ed was talking about, and we're going to get into in a lot more detail on the podcast, uh, that this uh, passage is so debated is that James seemingly contradicts completely what Paul says about how it is that we are saved. Uh, here uh, in James chapter 2, verse 24, he says, "You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone." Sounds great. The only problem is that in Romans chapter three, Paul seems to say exactly the opposite thing when he says, "For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works." Alone, so you can see ones in the works corner and ones in the you know faith corner, and they're just going to duke it out. Like when they see each other in the hallways, it's kind of awkward and weird and and that sort of thing. Um, And and so, a lot of people have asked the question through centuries: uh, Do James and Paul contradict each other? Uh, Is this proof that the Bible is just man-made and it doesn't make sense? And That's not at all what's going on here. Um, There's a lot to this, and there's a lot deeper that I don't have time to talk to you about, but I'm just going to tell you and just take my word for it until we put the podcast up this week. They don't contradict each other. In fact, they actually help each other out because what is going on is that Paul and James are talking about two different moments in the life of a Christian. Uh, Paul is talking about what it means and and what it takes to to come to faith in God and what it is that saves you. James is talking about what does it look like years down the road. Like what is this thing of following Jesus? How how does it spell out? How do you know that it's there? What evidence is there? Uh, Really what we see here is what what it would look like. It's really the difference in if you were to talk with or counsel a, a healthy family versus a dysfunctional family. In a healthy family, you might say, hey, you guys have got this. You you, you kind of know what's going on. So the things you would talk about is you just say, you know, love. Hey, remember, you should love each other. Hey, lo- love's, a, love's a big deal. Love them more than yourself. Don't don't be selfish. And you just kind of throw out these generalities and, and, and that sort of thing and say, you guys have got this. You're doing it already. Don't need to give you many specifics. I'm just going to remind you of the important stuff. On the other hand, if you were to meet with a family that was dysfunctional, uh, that wasn't kind of getting things right, didn't seem to have kind of the normal things that uh, most families do, you would say, hey, guess what? You've got to spend time together. You've got to, you know, working all the time to earn money isn't the same as loving them. Uh, Don't fight no matter how upset you get, right? Right? When you're meeting with people who are working through and have dysfunction in your life, the things you're going to tell them are going to be a lot more pointed. They're going to sound maybe more harsh and maybe even to a degree sound even legalistic. Like you have to do these things. These things are necessary, non-negotiable. In dysfunction, you give a list of rules because people are fixing the bad habits in their life. That's what James is doing here. He is writing to the church at this time that is working through dysfunction. They don't get how this life in Jesus is supposed to be working, how it's supposed to be different. And so really, as we kind of transition from that, what we want to know and what we're going to work through together this morning is what is the main point that James is getting at? What does he want the church to know? And, and if we could boil it down to just one one statement is that James's main point is that what we do matters. What we do matters. It makes a difference in our life, what you and I do. And it's not just about our witness that we so often talk about in Christian circles. They like, Oh, hey, what we do matters because people will see it and that's how we witness. But James is saying what you do matters in your own life. The thing is, is that as I've looked at this passage this week, what James is saying, really, I, I, he's operating under the assumption that we already agree with this, that we all live our lives this way, that, that we know that what we do matters. That it doesn't matter just what we say about ourselves, but it matters what we back it up with actions. I, 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 I The first commercial that I can remember seeing and like getting really implanted into my head. You know you watch too much TV, right, when you like know commercials that are on. You know you watch way too much when you can remember commercials like decades before. Uh, Does anybody remember the Wendy's commercial uh, about where's the beef, right? Like, right, like, here she is, like, where's the beef, right? And this was an awesome commercial, because what they did, they, they would actually talk about, I, I love the sign in the background of it says, home of the big bun, and um, they would talk about uh, McDonald's and uh, Burger King, they'd say, you know, they say they have the Big Mac, and they say they have the Whopper, uh, but really what you end up getting is, like, more bread than beef, and so if you say you have a hamburger, like, what makes a hamburger, right? The beef. So they talk about how like their single, like their smallest burger has more meat than the other ones, their big burgers and that sort of thing. And so where's the beef? So if you say you're a hamburger, where's the thing that really matters? How do you back it up? What's the evidence of it? Where's the beef, right? So we know this, like we live this out in our lives because they tap into it in our marketing. But if we, when we say things like, well, I'm a good parent, I, I'm a good employee, I'm a good spouse, I'm just a good person. Any time. That anybody says that to us, what is the thing we ask them, where's the beef? Where's the proof that you are what you say you are? And we know this ourselves inherently in us because anytime that we even start to think about throwing this out there about ourselves, claiming to be something, we start looking at us in a different way and saying, okay, if I'm going to say this about who I am, what in my life points to that reality? James says it's the same thing when we say and tell people, well, I have faith. When we claim to be followers of Jesus, James says there's going to be something that we have to be able to point to that shows the reality of what what we say is going on in our life, what our life is oriented around, what our life is about. And so he's writing to a church that, that he knows what their inclination is going to be because he seems to, he just knows the way that we're wired as people. And, and that is that when we know we have to prove what it is we say we are, we are inclined. It's very typical for us to try to find faith by what we like to do. James says we end up relying on our natural tendencies as proof of our faith. That a lot of times when we're telling people uh, about our life and, and Jesus Christ, the thing that we end up pointing to and relying on more than anything is, is what we are naturally good at. It, it's kind of like uh, having a doctor, right? There are certain things that make up a good doctor. And if we were like to boil it down to three, we could maybe say, like, th- three most important things in a doctor are, first of all, that they, they should be knowledgeable, right? And then maybe they should be able to like, diagnose what's going on in you. And then finally, bedside manner. Like We all know how important bedside manner is. So we, we say, well, they have to be knowledgeable above all else. And so they need to know the symptoms. They need to know diseases. And they need to know the body. They just need to know, know, know. And we say, well, they need to be a detective, though. They need to be able to diagnose. And so the job of a doctor is to find out what's causing something and if you're wrong. Lives are on the line. They can't screw this stuff up. You don't just need knowledge. You need to know how to look for clues and how to puzzle that together. We might say with bedside manner, they've got to be good with people. A a, a doctor has to be at the bedside during the hardest time. They have to be willing to sit with you and talk with you and, and work through things with you and not make you feel like you're alone and you suffer and struggle with things. The thing with each one of these that make up a doctor is that every doctor has a natural tendency to be better at one of them. Not, there is no doctor that is great at all three of these. I think we can agree on that, right? And so what we end up saying is a good doctor is the thing that we identify with the most. And it ends up being the thing that that doc- doctor is naturally more inclined to be good at. And so somebody asks you and says, well, who's your doctor? And you tell him, say, well, is he good? Well, yeah, he's great. He's fantastic. He was able to diagnose what was going on and other doctors couldn't find it out. Well, how's his bedside manner? Not that great, but he can diagnose stuff really well, right? Our lives and our, our faith Function very much the same way, that we have things that we are naturally inclined and naturally better at. They're they're, they're things that we take comfort in because we know this is an area we can always come back to. This is something that we do well. And the thing that James wants the church to know is, is that as you begin to see these and define your faith by these, you will end up relying on them. And this isn't bad. It's not bad to know what you're good at. It's not bad to know what your strengths are. The problem is that we end up perverting these things and making them the evidence of our faith. That they are what our faith is entirely built on and what it hinges on. And what's more is we start showing and telling others that this is what it looks like. This is the evidence of faith. Through this passage, James shows what I think are three different aspects of faith that we tend to rely on. There are aspects of faith that he saw going on in the church. They were beginning to rely on these and what was really important, what really mattered. And they're things that I think that we tend to still do today. The first one that he talked to them about was that we rely on talking an awful lot. It's really good for a pastor to say. In, chapter, in verse 15, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He says, well, what's interesting about this is last week when we were looking at the passage before, he, he used a pretty specific example, and he, and he used a lot of detail that kind of lent itself to, to say, you know, this was something that actually happened, that they'd had a rich person come into their meeting place and a poor person, and they told the rich person sit here and the poor person sit there, and it, it was this whole big thing. And, and so it kinda, you kind of think, well, this is something that's actually happened. This is a more general hypothetical You see someone, you see that they have a need, you know what that need is, you even acknowledge the need, and then all you simply say to them is, well, I bless you. He says to to do that, to, to see it, to acknowledge it, and then even worse, bless this person. This is a level of faith, of relying on something that does not matter, that is going to, in the end, Leave you in a place that is not good. He, he says that actually what they said to him is go in peace. And, and, and the, the word that he uses here is the actual blessing that when, when believers would get together and they, they would have their time, they would have a meal, and then they would get together and, and hear from the word and then also uh, share communion together. I, at the very end of that gathering, uh, the pastor, the leader of the group would stand at the door and as everybody was walking out, they would say, go in peace. So James says, like, you're using the right language. Like, this is the thing that religious people say. That that, that we all know it. We, we, We know it sounds good. We know it's the thing that we should say. But James says, what good, literally, what good is it to say the right thing? If you can see what's wrong, you can do something about it, and yet all you give them is, go in peace, be warmed and filled. He says, if your faith only amounts to religious jargon, it isn't worth that much. That merely saying nice words when more is needed isn't Christian love. Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What, what would... would Paul is pointing now, he's writing to a group that uh, that was often referred to as, as Judaizers. They were, they were a group in the church trying to get believers to come back to the Jewish faith, to, to certain things that they had done before under the old law. And, and one of the things was they were saying, like, circumcision is a mark of salvation. If you don't have that, you can't be part of God's chosen people. And Paul said, that doesn't matter. That is not evidence of your faith, but what is Working through love. This is what James means by works when he talks about them, when he uses that word. It isn't some legalistic keeping a set of rules. It isn't what the Pharisees were talking about in Jesus' day, where that through certain works they would be able to earn their salvation. They would have certain standing in the kingdom of God. No, what James is boiling this word down to is simply loving people. In the same way that Jesus has loved you. Loving people around you. And he says, A faith that is dead is filled with the right but empty words. Our faith begins to die the more we begin to rely on our talking to show what we believe in. I think we all know what it's like to have empty words, don't we? Like, we know what it's like to be in a certain situation where we feel like we have to say certain things, right? And we know what it's like to have a Christian language all to ourselves, right? Like, we say some pretty weird stuff that, like, only if you've been in the church do you understand, right? Like, eschatological and stuff like that, right? Everybody's like, oh, yeah, we know what that word means. Um, but we know what this is like to, to be in certain situations. We, we know what it's like when someone is standing across from us. And they're sharing what's going on in their life. They're sharing that they've just had a cancer diagnosis or, or that they've lost their job or, or, or they're worried about how their marriage is going. And, and, and we get to the end of the conversation and we just know that thing we're supposed to say, right? I'll pray for you. But how many times have we said, I'll pray for you, and then we haven't even thought about those people the rest of the week? In fact, this has become our way in the church of just saying what everybody else says. Well, I'm sorry, or my heart goes out to you. And yet we feel the need that we have to, we're compelled to say this. Why? Well, because evidence of our faith is relying on what we say. Or we say things like, well, if we're going to be a church or or a family or, or a person that cares about and just fill in the blank." If we're going to be a church that cares about missions, if you're a person that cares about children, or if we are a people, a family, that cares about reaching our neighbors, then we will do and then just whatever that is. When really that's our way of saying, well, I'm passionate about this, so you should be passionate about it as much as I'm passionate about it. We feel the need to say these things, to, to put out to everyone what we're passionate about. And that if people aren't passionate about the same thing, then somehow that shows they don't have maybe the amount of faith that we do. One of the great things uh, about going through follow uh, here at the church uh, at OCEC with people has been uh, seen just in my own life, but uh, with the people I've gone through it with, is how it changes the way you talk about uh, your faith. But not just that, like how you talk about things that are so easy to say, the first session, you talk about core beliefs. And they're things that are just, if you've been in the church any amount of time, that you just know are the right thing to say. Like, I believe God is good. And yet, going through that and talking it over with someone else, you have to pause and you have to say, well, I believe it but, and I say it, but actually, how is it affecting my life? Am I living my life? The things that I let bother me, uh, the the way I orient my daily routine, how how I view money. Do I really believe God is good by the way I do these other things? The point is that our faith can be more words than action. And James wants the early church here, but I think we also need to hear and know That each time we speak with no intention of doing what it is we talk about, that we think somehow the right words, us being able to say them, shows the depth and level of our faith, is evidence that there is something more to this. Every time we do this, every time we say it without the intention of following up on it, we grow more calloused. And eventually over time our faith will die. James says that in a living faith, you cannot separate words from action. They are not two separate things that we have to choose faith over loving those around us. That in fact, when you have one, you have the other, and they grow and they build each other as well. I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves in trying to figure out is, do we rely on talking as evidence of our faith? It's just the simple question of, do my words increase people's opinion of me or of God? Do I feel the need to say it because it's what they need to hear to point them to Jesus, or do I feel the need to say it because if I don't, somehow that might make them think I'm not as good as a Christian as I'd like them to think. As a pastor... um, so, James goes on, and he, he says, When you rely on talking, you're bound to, or, or potentially have the possibility of, of relying on some of these other things. It's interesting that I was thinking about this. As a pastor, I don't know how many times I, I, I've heard people, especially people that have maybe been on, um, grew up in the church and, and, and then went away or, or, or whatever, they'll we'll just say something along the lines of, Well, I just know I have faith, I just know I believe. And usually what that entails is they recount earlier experiences of faith to say that they believe. that There was a point that they believed Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the son of God. And they, they, they said the prayer and that sort of thing and say, well, I, I know I believe. James is, is telling us here in, in verse 18 as we go on that when we separate faith from what we do, we, we end up relying more on believing and knowing the right thing. He says we actually end up relying on knowledge. We like to think that knowing the right thing is the most important aspect of faith. And James would disagree with that. James actually says there in verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. What he's quoting directly here is a verse from the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's actually in uh, Judaism called the Shema. And what it says there is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was the profession of faith for the children of Israel. This was the thing that set them apart. It wasn't just a profession of faith to say this is what we believe in. It was a monotheistic profession of faith in a polytheistic world. This was the first time that it was thrown out there that it might be possible that there's only one God and not many gods. This was a big deal. And James here is making light of it. Oh, hey, good for you guys. You believe there's one God. Woohoo! Way to go. Pat yourself on the back. I mean, can you imagine that? Something you've built your entire life around, something you've actually suffered for, something people, because you believe there's one God, look at you and say you're an atheist because you don't believe that there are many gods. It was where faith began from them, and it separated them from the world. James says, oh, you have the right ideas, and that's great, but how is that enough to save you? How is it enough to do anything when even the demons believe that? And what he's referencing there, when he says even the demons believe and they shudder, he's talking about a few different places in Scripture, but one of them is in Mark chapter 5. Where Jesus comes into contact with a man that is possessed by several demons. And Jesus, not even having said anything to the the possessed man, this guy comes up to him and cries out in a loud voice and says, What have you done with me? What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I ask you by God, do not torment me. Here's this guy possessed by demons, the demons speaking out of him, say the very same thing that these Jewish Christians were claiming was the evidence of their faith. That they believed that there was one God. They knew the right thing. They could say the right thing. But you see, the thing about demons, as much as they know that there's one God, as much as they know that Jesus is the Son of God, as much as they know that God has power over them and they're never going to be able to totally conquer him, James says none of that matters because ultimately they do not love Jesus. Even if you can say the right thing, even if you know and have a level of knowledge that other people look at and they're astounded by, but it never shapes your life, you're in the same boat as the demon's. Knowing the right thing is one aspect of faith, but it does not encompass all of faith. And there is no level of knowledge that can do that for you. This is another thing that we just know all too well in our life. Like, we can see this, like, how how this actually works, just really practically. How often do we know the right thing, but it doesn't change us? It actually doesn't make much of an impact on our life, right? I mean, how how many of us would agree that too much screen time is bad, right? I'd like to see somebody stand up and like argue, like, no, it's a good thing, right? So, too much screen time is bad. Okay. But how much time do you spend watching TV or on your phone or on the computer every day? How much does knowing the right thing actually change who you are and what you do? I, I think most of us could agree that eating well and exercising is best, right? Yeah. How much time have we spent at the gym this week? Don't want to ask you what you're eating for lunch after this. Like, right? Or maybe even, like, even better. I think all of us would agree that materialism is not a great thing to orient your life around. And that it will never, no matter how much stuff you have and you accumulate, it will never satisfy you in the way you're looking for it to do. And yet, how much of our time would we say, is spent thinking about the next thing we want to buy or paying off the thing we already bought or how we can't wait till we're able to get the entire collection complete. James isn't diminishing the need to believe the right thing. But he says faith goes well beyond it because your life isn't lived in a classroom. This isn't, this life is not a test that you need to cram for in hopes that you have the right answer whenever the final happens. What James is saying is is that when he talks about faith he is talking about a relationship, he's talking about a commitment, and one that will shape and change you in a way that knowledge never will. Ultimately living faith is marked by a knowledge but it's not the type we think of it is it's not factual it's not being able to just simply state there is one god but it's a knowledge that actually affects what we do and how we orient our life and and the day in day out habits that we take on i i think ultimately that living faith is marked by a knowledge of the gospel and by the gospel what i mean by that is ultimately the gospel is who god is Who he is and then being able to see him seeing who we actually are and how far the gap is between us and him. And then realizing that there's never going to be anything that we can do to bridge that gap. And so we need something done for us. And then knowing that Jesus, Jesus has done that. That The evidence of a living faith is the knowledge that we are not worthy for what He has done for us, and there's nothing we could do to ever make ourselves good enough, but we can have a relationship with Him. And so because of that free gift and how amazing that is, we can live in that and then live out of it. And that we don't do these things in our life of, of what... James is talking about as far as Christian works of of loving those around us out of some sense of we have to do it. We get to do it. That he has done something in us. He has changed us so we don't have to be as focused on ourselves that we can actually love people the way God has loved us. It's a knowledge of the gospel in that way that actually changes what I do in my life. Not just that I can spout off some scripture verses. So he says we we tend to rely on talking because we're good at that. We tend to rely on knowledge because we like the idea of that. Or he says you rely on reputation. In verse 21 he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So there's a lot right here, just in this like one section of this passage. that There's a lot going on, and so let's just distill it down into like the simple fact that James is using two completely opposite people here, Abraham and Rahab. I don't think he could come up with an example of two people that are more different. Abraham, the father of Israel, the founder of the faith, and Rahab, not Jewish, and a prostitute. This was actually probably really hard for these Jewish Christians to see To to see Abraham listed in the same sentence as someone like Rahab. Because of how much they leaned on being related to Abraham. It was their way of showing and saying that they were part of God's people. It was the evidence of their faith was Abraham's reputation. It was their lineage. Yet James here blows all of that out of the water because he says it it wasn't lineage. It wasn't right thinking. It wasn't words that made Abraham. He said the same thing that made a difference in his life was what made a difference in Rahab's life. It was a relationship that resulted in a different life, in different actions, and doing things that they otherwise themselves would not do. What what he's also showing here uh, to us in the church by by using Rahab and, and Abraham as Rahab shows us how much we expect from a new convert and how gracious we are towards ourselves and our reputation, right? If Abraham had done nothing other than believe the promises of God, that would have been enough for the children of Israel. And they never would, like Abraham could have done nothing the rest of his life. And they would have been like, he believed in the promises of God. That was always the thing they went back to and they pointed to. Rahab, on the other hand, had to help Jewish spies get out of the city by helping them down a wall. She had to take her own life into her hands to prove herself that she had faith. How much we look at people as they first come to Christ and we hold them to a different standard than we hold ourselves, right? We say, well, we know your lineage. We know where you come from. We know your reputation. James says, when you look at both of them, the thing that shows their faith, the thing that is evidence that it is real and it is there, is the same thing, and it's not their reputation. It's that we can say that they did things that were not normal for either of them. Things that were not in their nature or in their wheelhouse. Abraham putting Isaac on an altar is not something he normally did. Sacrificing the son that he wanted so desperately, that all of his hope for a future was tied up in, was not a normal occurrence for him. In the same way, Rahab doing what she did was not either. The same thing that mattered in their life, James is saying, is the same thing that has to matter in the church's life, in our lives. And it's not our lineage. It's not where we come from. It's not our reputation. It's not what we can point back to. Even the example he uses for Abraham here draws this out. He doesn't focus on, as many of them would, that he believed God and in his promises. No, it's not the initial faith of believing, but it's actually what comes after, like several years after, right? It's that in the moment, years later, that God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He has enough faith. A faith that is alive, that is active, that is in relationship with God, to trust him enough that he is willing to lose what he valued most. We see that in Abraham, his faith had grown over time. Sure, I mean, he could have... I never thought about this before, but do you realize that when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, how easy it would have been for Abraham to just coast on the fact that he believed God before. Whoa, 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 God, like... Just, I mean, okay, I get that you're asking me to do that. I don't really want to do that, but let's not forget the times I believed you before, right? It would have been so easy for his response to be that way. And, and I realize that now because I realize that I do that. I, 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 I realize that when I get in fights with Hannah and I realize that I'm wrong, I do something. Um, I, 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 so thinking about this, the two times that it's happened that I've been wrong, um, I realize I have this tendency that when 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 it hits me that she's right and there's no way I'm going to win this argument that i really like to point back to things i've done before that have nothing to do with the present argument i like to remind her of like what a good husband i am and the things i do for her like that aren't you know revolving around this current issue and that sort of thing that somehow My past actions will excuse my insensitivity in the present. I want my reputation to win out. And when I'm wrong in my relationship, I like to rely on my reputation and think that somehow for my wife that should matter more than how I'm loving her now. And we do this all the time in the church, don't we? We like to point... At things like how long we've been in a church, positions that we've held, or even how we serve as the evidence of our faith. We say things like, because I've taught the children's class or led the Bible study, because I've stacked chairs, cleaned the carpets, led worship, that these things, my reputation, shows not just the existence of, but the amount of my faith. We like to rely on our reputation, and we point people back to the thing that we've built over time, and we say that this should matter more, that this is evidence of my faith. Don't look at what I'm doing now or where I am, but look at what I've done. We actually end up seeing our faith like an inanimate object, almost like a trophy that that we put time into and we really worked on and we earned, and so now that we have it, we can put it on the shelf, and when we need to, we dust it off, and we point to it and show people, look at what I did shows something about me, shows where I am. I mean, we've all been to that person's house that they, they're like 40 and they take you into a room and they show you and talk to you about their Little League trophies, right? That's weird, right? Like, that's, that's really strange when somebody does that. That's what we do with our faith, isn't it? I mean, how weird would that be if, if we did that in our marriages, if we did that in our relationships that matter the most? If we said things like, well, hey, look, I can point to my wedding day as a time I loved you, I know I loved you, I said I loved you. So why don't you just take that and like live there? Like it doesn't matter what I'm doing right now. That I can coast. I I put in the work. I said the things. I did what you wanted. We had your kind of wedding. I'm a good husband. Never mind I haven't talked to you in four days. Like, you know, sort of thing, right? We do this in our life. It's this thing that we can somehow put up here and we say it's apart from us. Look at it. It says what I am. Don't worry about today. Look, faith is strengthened by the past, but it does not live there. Faith that we can live by and rely on is a faith that is presently active. It's a faith that may indeed call us to new places and ministries. And it's a faith that may ask us to lay down on the altar the thing that we value most. I think we... Each one of us, we fall into one of these three categories that we tend to rely on just based on who we are and how we're wired and what we're good at and what our natural tendencies are. We rely on our talking to be the evidence of our faith that if we can just say the right things at the right time, it'll show what we want people to see. It'll prove to us somehow that this thing is real. Some of us, we, we think that if we, can, if we can have deeper, better knowledge, a, a wider breadth and a depth to our knowledge, that other people look at and they're like, wow, I can't, I can't believe that they know those things. that's I never would have imagined. And somehow that will say something about the level and depth of our faith. For others of us, it's a reputation. I mean, it, it, it's this idea that I, because I've put in the work before, I, I, I can coast, I can take it easy now. Like I, I can point back to people and say, you know, 20 years ago I did this thing. And the question for us is that as we rely on one of these three things, it's the question that James asked in verse 14 to his church. It's the same one that I think he would ask us if, we're, if he were here today is, do you really think that faith based on your talking your knowledge, or your reputation is a faith that can save you today? Do you think what you did 20 years ago somehow is going to help you with what is going on in your life today? James says that the only faith, only faith that relies on Jesus is faith that ends up working. Only faith that relies and is based on Jesus. It's the only one that ends up working in us. It's the only one that can change us because he's the only one that's alive. It's the only one that ends up working in our life. It's the only one that we can see tangibly. It's the only one because he takes us to places we would never go. He asks us to do things and give up things that we would never in a million years give up ourselves. He asks us to love people that we would otherwise forget. James is saying the only thing that matters is what Christ has called us to, and that is to love God and love others. And so the only thing that you can point to as evidence of your faith is that. He says what's more is we have this tendency to want to separate the two, that somehow we can have faith without works or works without faith. He says you can't do that. Once you take one from the other, you begin killing both. that when we begin relying on our ability to speak or how much we know or the reputation we've built over time as a way of saying look this thing is real in my life what we end up finding and getting in our life isn't Jesus isn't the living God isn't the one that can change us we just end up getting more of ourselves sprinkled in with better language and some Trivial facts that ultimately won't change us or help those around us.